Hey everybody, Melissa McKenzie, the American Spectator here again with Scott McKay, also the American Spectator. Uh, awesome uh, podcast last week, Scott. You did you did great. Uh, Thank we're, you. We're, we finally seem to be hitting our stride. All of you listeners can give us feedback about that. Remember to like, subscribe, and share, please, but also to give us feedback. You can email me at Mackenzie M, um, as in Mary, Mackenzie M, at spectator.org. Where can you be reached, Scott? Uh, hit me up at Scott McKay at Reviver, R-V-I-V-R.com. Okay. So this week has been, the economy's uh, doing great, right? According to Biden. And as a so um, emblematic of the greatness, our bank failures. We all know <laughs> that good things are happening in the economy when banks are failing. And this week we had two of them. This last week we had two of them. But the problem is, is that one of them at least was what the second biggest bank failure in American history. That would be uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And um, everybody who is important to the leftist world evidently either had their money in the bank or it had invested in the bank. And uh, it came out today, I think it was today, it came out that there were private buyers, who pe people who wanted to buy the bank and the government, the FDIC would not let them. And the government is taking over the bank, which means you and I, the taxpayers, are bailing this bank out and they don't want this bank in the hands of some other private into group because of who's invested in this bank. And they don't want the average person, I guess, to find out about this or they want to sweep it all under the rug. So you've got that political element of it. And then you have the economic part, which is the economy uh, is not doing that great for all of the lies to the contrary. So what say you, Scott? I mean... Well, I, you know, I think maybe the turning point in the Silicon Valley Bank saga um, came over the weekend when somebody uh, on Twitter suggested to Elon Musk uh, that, hey, you know what, you should buy this thing at a at a big discount and use it to back your idea of uh, creating Twitter as a, um, you know, kind of PayPal 2.0, right, mm -hmm. which He's looking around for things that he can use to monetize Twitter because obviously the advertising piece is uh, not going to be as lucrative as it was since he's not woke and the woke ad agencies on Madison Avenue and other places are you know, going to do less business with Twitter. But, you know, the, 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 the usership of Twitter is way up. So, you know, if you offer people something uh, like being able to basically marry a PayPal, which he has expertise in, since that's how he made his money initially, um, with the massive platform that he's got with Twitter. I mean, that could be a big deal. And in fact, it could be fairly disruptive to the banking industry as a whole. Um, and when somebody suggested this to him, uh, and his response was something like, might be worth looking at, Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's that's when the panic set in, mm -hmm. because honestly, Elon Musk could buy that bank without too much trouble, particularly right. if he's going to get it at a discount. 
Right. Um, you know, and, and the deal there is, yeah, you're right. Um, the investors in Silicon Valley Bank uh, are not under law protected, right? Like they're supposed to lose their money. Um, the Fed's buying this means they're protecting a whole bunch of big Democrat donors. Mm -hmm. um, it's more than just that, because the way this bank is set up, um, only about 9% of the depositors in Silicon Valley Bank come in under that $250,000 mm -hmm. limit, right? The FDI insures deposits in banks up to $250,000. Well, 90 to 91% or 92%, whatever the number is, it's something like that, of the deposits in Silicon Valley Bank are more than $250,000. This is the place where if you're one of these rich, rich you know, tech billionaires, oligarchs, and so forth, that's where you keep your money. Um, it's very much sort of like a country club bank for, you know, rich tech people. Well, here, so, can I just interject real quick yeah, go here? For it. There's something I don't understand because like the local, the, uh, so regional banks, at least around uh, the DC area, because we have the American Spectator money in banks, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't want to have over to, because of that, nope. you do not want to put your donor money at risk. I don't know why I'd want my personal money at risk. So when you reach that 250,000 threshold, there are vehicles, like there's this clever financial thing where you never have more than $250,000 in any That's one bank. And you can transfer the money around. Um, you know, it's a bit of creative banking, but Wells Fargo has this, uh, the regional bank where our money is uh, for our Biz, you know, the American Spectator has this, where if you have more than that, you um, put your money in the special account, and by the end of day closing, you don't have more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in any one bank account. Correct. And so I don't under. So when I read this, I was like, were they just not part of this kind of a system to make that happen for their people that they, they didn't offer? This is kind of a basic, in my opinion, service that they should be offering. And, but I looked at it only, uh, one member of their board of directors had anything to do with banking. They were all like woke board members Correct. I mean, the whole system for they they went for almost a year without a. They didn't have a risk assessment guy a, for the last nine months. Right. And then I you mean, found out what happens when you don't have a risk assessment guy. Um, but they had three DEI people or something. I mean, right. And they they spent five billion dollars on like climate change initiatives and stuff like that. And you know we're gonna we're a bank. We're gonna lower our carbon footprint. And it's like, you're a bank. Like right. all that is, is vert it's $5 billion down a hole for virtue signaling is all right, that is. Right, right. And then, you know, and then they go under and it's like, well, okay, this is, this is like, this is a haircut that people need to take. Right. And of course, what happens is, is, you know, because these are, you know, rich elite uh, leftists, a lot of whom are big Democrat donors, you know, we're going to make everybody whole on the taxpayers dime, Right. And you're probably going to get something similar with Signature Bank in New York. Uh, the interesting thing, I think the governmental relations guy at Signature Bank, I want to say, is Barney Frank, right? Yeah. Who, when he leaves Congress, this was his payoff, was that he got that job. Right. 
And of course, the bank goes under. I mean, it's like, you know, the Dodd-Frank guy. <laughs> the place well, not only that, under. he was the, he, you know, I wrote way back in the day uh, about him and Chuck. Uh, what's his face? Schumer, Schumer uh, had a brain brain fright fart there. Uh, Chuck Schumer were the ones who caused the first financial crisis sure. because they were the ones who were writing no, writing letters to the banks in New York saying that they had to take on bad loans yeah. um, because they were being racist. And so yeah. all of these um, banks were writing terrible, terrible home loans and they mm -hmm. were turning to junk and then bundling all the bad loans together and selling them. And that's what caused the first financial crisis. And here we have Barney Frank, who's this was his thing between <laughs> him and Schumer. And he now decided to get down in the trenches and do his work this time. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just insanity. Well, and I mean, look, um, if you want to look at um, explanations for this beyond the, you know, get woke, go broke. Uh, type thing, what you have here is um, the whipsawing of the Fed scrambling to keep the economy afloat and fight inflation by raising interest rates, right. and what that does to these bank balance sheets. Um, you know, I mean, like when you raise interest rates, you get bank failures because what you get is you know, the bank takes out loans. You know, most people mm -hmm. uh, will will do adjustable rate loans because you typically get better rates that way. But right. then when they jack the interest rates up, all of a sudden, mm -hmm. a lot of these things become not serviceable. And so mm -hmm. people turn the keys into the bank rather than pay the mortgage mm -hmm. or in Silicon Valley Bank's case. I mean, they're they're doing business loans on, right. you know, tech startups, which you know, they're, I mean, these guys are typically not making a profit. Their whole point is to develop some app and then offload it on this, on a, some big company. And that's their exit strategy. Well, you know, their whole thing is, is they're burning uh, venture capital, servicing the debt on these loans. Well, when the debt gets too big, these guys, all right, that's it. Let's move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And so the bank starts losing money off of this. Right. And when right. you've committed all of this money to these stupid woke ideas, I mean, the collapse was more or less inevitable, but the, the the thing of it is, and it's so funny, like on Twitter, Liz Warren is running around talking yeah. about how this is Trump's fault. It's right. like, no, the economic conditions that your guy set in motion with bad fiscal policy. Okay. Right. And that, you know, I like, I'm not, I'm no fan of the fed here, but the fed is put in an impossible position, mm -hmm. Right. There, you know, you're trying to raise interest rates enough that you strangle inflation without doing the underlying economic damage that high interest rates will do. When the big, big problem that causes inflation is that you have too much money from government mm -hmm. uh, dollars being infused into the economy when we, when we didn't need it because right. we were already coming out of COVID when Biden took office yep. and decided to throw money out of helicopters. Chasing right. not enough goods and services, yeah. okay, which you get when you retard the productive capability of the American citizen through terrible regulations, bad yeah. tech uh, 
uh, tax policy and all of this Green New Deal garbage that raises the price of energy. So you not you don't have enough production in the economy. You've got too much consumption in the economy. So inflation goes up, and now the Fed is is engaging in destructive economic Fed right. policy right. by raising interest rates to try to stop the inflation that frankly would go away on its own if you just turned loose the productive sector yep. and stopped throwing worthless money into the economy, which right. is Joe Biden's fault, right? right? They're blaming everybody but the source of this problem. And the, the nobody at the woke SVB is going to come out and say, hey, our bank failed largely because you guys pulled the rug out from under us, you know, more so than any of the woke stuff that we did that y'all liked. Like you changed the economic conditions such that we couldn't adjust, probably because they're not very good bankers. But the point is, right. is you made it more difficult on them. And nobody is going to blame the people really responsible for this. They're going to they're going to hang Jerome Powell out to dry on this deal. And, you know, I'm, without being a big fan of his, this is not his fault. This right. is Joe Biden's fault and the clowns who handle it. Well, and the thing is, is so like. SVB is particularly vulnerable because of their client base and because they're in tech stocks. But the problem is the, the fundamental issues that you raise are also part of all the other banks. And so they literally had a bank run at yep. SVB. And this is happening quietly across i'm going to tell you something so like i and then we have to uh wrap this up for right now but um this is happening in all the banks across america it's just happening have they have more diversification in in right. their uh investments and who's investing in them but all banks ac across all sectors yesterday were down everybody's um, taking a beating on this. everybody is taking a beating and and not only that, consumers are nervous. And that because the thing is, is that if all banks go, um, which they won't, I mean, they did during the Great Depression. However, you know, the FDIC, mm, it, it, how much can it absorb? Right now, we are so, te we are, like you say, we're in a weird situation where there's way too much money already flowing. And now they're trying to cut it back to cut back inflation, but the only way to keep this this situation liquid is to put more cash in, and so that is what Biden has decided to do, with you know taking on you know buying out this. He's like FDIC insurance is going to pay for this, okay? But you can't do this across the whole you know no. sector. You can't because it's no. going to cause other problems. So I don't know, like the, the, everybody is in a jam and, and we never really paid the piper for what happened in 08 and 09. Oh, I everything's mean, been kicked down the road, kicked down the road, kicked down the road. Well, it's at some point in one of these podcast episodes, and it's probably going to come back around with a pretty good news hook. Um, we're going to have to talk about the fact that all of those mortgage backed securities that caused the last financial right. contagion mm -hmm. are on the Fed's balance sheet now because the Fed for right. 15 years has been buying this bad paper. Right. 
So, you know, well, like that's, only- that's for another podcast, I'm sure. But like, that's right. a big, big problem because those, those, that's still bad paper. It's not better paper than it was before. Anyway. Well, and not only that, um, you've got all of these huge investment companies like BlackRock and everybody else who bought up all homes at low interest rates. Well, interest rates are high now and people are not buying. And I'm starting to see things here in Texas where we've been relatively housing immune because there's just hasn't been enough supply for the demand. That's stopping. And what I'm also seeing is is low lower income homes um that were on the market bought and then people are um you know interest rates go up a half a percentage point and then they're not uh eligible for getting a loan anymore and so the first time home buyers and the kind of uh lower quality um, buyers are not being able to get and this is starting to go up you know, things are sitting longer and what happens to the banking system and to these big investment houses then, you know, because that's a lot of, um, it's a whole lot of red ink and we'll a whole see lot of red ink. Out of business as a result. And, yeah. you know, then the, the train keeps on rolling. So, yeah. um, I mean, this is what you get with a badly managed economy. Yeah. And, you know, a badly managed economy is part and parcel of Democrat political leadership. And, you know, you can almost question whether or not, you know, they even care or whether it's even something that they want because half of these guys want to bring on the revolution anyway. So, you know, it's a scary time and, and, you know, we're still a year and change out from being able to, you know, have any real ability to fix it. So, you know, pucker up everybody. Yeah, get ready for the ride because it's going to be crazy. All right, everybody, we're back here at the Spectator Podcast, The Spectacle. Joining us today, we have a special guest, which is very exciting. Father Leo, and I don't know how to say your last name. Paddling hug. (laughs) There we go. I'm glad I didn't try it. And we're talking (laughs) today about your book and... Uh, it's a cookbook. It's a book about saints. It's a, it's just so exciting. We thought that during Lent, this would be the perfect time to have a discussion with, um, you father about this amazing book. It's called dining with saints. Can you tell us what motivated you, motivated you to write this? Yeah, absolutely. So I co-authored this with a very smart man named Dr. Michael Foley. He's the author of a book called Drinking with the Saints. It's actually a series. And it was so popular that Regnery Publications wanted to do another kind of version of it. And they asked me if I would be willing to be co-author for Dining with the Saints. Now, I had written several books before, all on a theology of food, all about the family meal, all about relationships and what the food can do. And I've done a book even on calendar feast days, but I've never done anything specifically about saints. And so I saw this as a a unique challenge, gave me an opportunity to kind of dig deep into historical recipes, which I'm usually not into doing. And it was just a lot of fun. So my motivation was number one, it was a job opportunity. Two, it was a, a personal challenge 
for me. And, and three, I think on a spiritual level, I wanted to bring the awareness that saints are real people and that they ate like everybody else and that they had a culture of people that ate unique foods. And I think we need to bring a little bit of holiness and a little bit of sanctity and a little bit of saintly qualities back to the dinner table. Well, when I first received this book, I because uh, I asked for a copy so I could actually look at it, I was so excited. So you have to know, I am a new Catholic. Uh, you actually came to our church, um, our parish, not too long ago, twice. Once you cooked for us and once you came to give talks about uh, how to be, I think, a saint, like how to get into. Uh, and um, so I attended one of your talks. And so I saw this book, I was like, Ooh, this is exciting. And then I got it. And for me, who is relatively new, having a, a history of these people and put in context in this way is such a fun thing. But I also think it's fun for cooks too. Like there's some really interesting food choices in here. And I was wondering, cause some of them are strange, frankly, I was like, I was looking at the uh, St. Patrick's Day one. That one made sense to me because we're doing, you know, cabbage and whatever. Corn but, beef. Uh, yeah, corn beef. But I was wondering, you know, um, some of the other ones were um, stretches. So how did you choose the food for the various people? Well, so, as you said, some of it had to be stretched because there weren't necessarily food relationships to these saints but some of them did have them. So for example, one that I thought was fun was uh, haggis for St. Margaret of Scotland. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think there are going to be many people who are going to buy a sheep stomach and stuff it with a bunch of ground innards and, and oats and rice. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, obviously I, I could put that in. I didn't want to recipe test that, to be honest with you, <laughs> but, but I, I was willing to stretch it, so to speak, and turn it into a hash instead of just a big haggis. Uh, and so I, I had to use some creative license, but also keep to the tradition that in Scotland, you ate haggis. But at the same time, we don't. But in America, we have a version of it. It can be kind of of a pate. It could be kind of like a, a kind of like a like, like a, a brick of different types of of meat qualities that people won't use. It's called offal, and we we kind of fry it up, and and that's called hash. And so, what I thought to do is just use the ingredients of the dish, but bring it a little bit more forward so that it's accessible. Well, and for those of our listeners who are new to who you are, I mean, you're no novice chef. So can you tell everybody about some of the things that you've done in the cooking world that give you, that that make these, I, I was, I, I thought that the recipes were quite sophisticated and reflect some of them and really reflected someone who knew what they, their way around the kitchen. So, but that's because you do know your way. I around do. The yeah. I, I'm a priest um, ordained almost 25 years. I, I, I do have a culinary background. I'm a professional chef. I, I've, uh, I studied some culinary while I was taking courses in Italy and even beyond 
And I have um, just tried to learn as much as I possibly could from all of my travels. And some of these recipes were inspired by my travels. But I also have a food truck where I hire people coming out of the prison system and disadvantaged communities. And, and we are an award-winning food truck because of our the quality of our food. But I also think because of the message. And, um, and, and a few years back, I actually was on the Food Network. I've been on it on the many TV shows and I host my own TV show called Savoring Our Faith. But probably the biggest claim to fame was when I was in a competition with Bobby Flay and I won. It was called Throwdown with Bobby Flay. I made Father Leo's Funky Fusion Steak Fajita with Holy Guacamole and Screaming Sour Cream. That's, <laughs> That's awesome. Line. <laughs> that is great. I would love that meal, actually. That actually sounds good. really good. It's, it's good. Sounds really good. Okay, so one of the things that you mentioned and has been part of your mission, too, is getting families around the table. And it is something that has been lost, especially with the rise of single motherhood, the rise of um, just both parents working and the kind of kids being so busy in school. Like I can say this as a mom of having raised three children the, with all of the, the busyness in this modern life, having a family meal can fall by the wayside. And do you have suggestions and reasons why we should prioritize that? Uh, okay. So there's a couple of questions in there. Uh, the reasons for it is because, you know, I'll just be very honest. If you don't feed your children, somebody else will, if you don't give them godliness, the devil will be very happy to feed your children evil that looks good, tastes good, but will ultimately destroy them from the inside. And so I don't want to scare the heaven into people, but I always have to remind them that this is the primary responsibility of the parents. They are the primary educator of their children. And the best place to educate them is at the dinner table, because by grace, it is transformed into a desk where the greatest lessons in life are learned. Because if you don't teach them, if you don't feed them, the devil will. Now, how do you do it? That's always a tricky question because I totally respect that people are busy. But I also believe that if this is not a priority, then other stupid things that aren't as necessary take over. We have to really understand that if we don't do this, we are doing danger to our children. We are not being present to them. I mean, honestly, where else can we show all the theological virtues of faithfulness, hope, and love, and all of the other beatitudinal qualities, like being of service to one another? Where else does that happen but at the family meal? Because this is something that everybody participates in equally. And their education at school is great, but unless you're homeschooling them, you're not teaching them. Athletics and sports, all that's great. But unless you're coaching them, you're sitting on the sidelines and you're just watching as a spectator, you know, hint, hint, you know, there you go. But we have to actually be completely involved and eating together is the only activity that a family does that is intimate, that is personal, that is service oriented, and that is actually loving. And so if we don't do it, 
then, you know, then, then we're going to really do a detriment to our children. How to do this is going to be technique. It's going to be practice. It's going to be discipline. It's going to be hard work. And that's why I wrote actually another book prior to this called Saving the Family. It teaches people how to eat together during the different generations that a family will go through, respecting that family dynamics are all different. You have the double uh, family, double parent family, or you have single parent issues and single parent raising issues. All of that I take into account but the regularity of the meal cannot be seen as important. It is necessary. Oh, well, I, I, I feel a little uh, a fire under me for a minute there. I mean, it's, it's been a con it's just a, such a challenge and, and so and is being healthy. Yes. I mean, if, if we just yeah. constantly throw, it's a challenge, it's a challenge, mm. then we're falling into that self-victimization that this world of the modern era loves to do. So, mm -hmm. so what? It's a challenge. Yeah. Do it. Because yeah. some things are worth the challenge. You know, if if there was uh if there was someone attacking your house, would you just say it's a challenge to protect it? No, <laughs> you better fight against it. And and I I I am I feel so emboldened now more than ever that again, the reason why we have a bunch of young kids who don't know anything about anything, especially their faith and their own identity, is because I don't think that they've experienced that affirmation of who they are as beloved, broken for sure, conflicted for sure, but loved for sure. That, wh where are they gonna get it from? Where else, if we were honestly think through it, where else will they get it from but at the family meal? Because the meal communicates so much. Even if you don't talk about these problems, the fact that you're eating together says so much. That's why the prodigal kid came home because he knew that the father would have a place for him at the table. Father Leo, uh, if I had to ask you, uh, what's, what's your favorite recipe that's in the book? So the, my favorite recipe in the book is one that kind of, um, was something that I didn't know about a certain saint. It was it was uh, Saint Francis of Assisi. I knew him a very as a very steadfast man who did a lot of personal self mortification. But Mike Foley, um, the co author, did this amazing research and he discovered that he loved almond cookies. I mean, like really, Saint Francis of Assisi enjoyed almond cookies. It's pretty decadent. So to just kind of up the notch of decadence, I dropped the little Nutella into that almond cookie as it bakes. Oh, okay. It was like melty and gooey and delicious and chocolatey. And so I just found that to be one that was kind of near and dear to my heart because it just, uh, it was so simple. It's an almond cookie, but you drop Nutella in it, it's worth celebrating on such a great feast day. <laughs> Uh, well, there, I'm really enjoying, you have a section, our reader should know this. There's a section in here on Lent actually. And so like you really help people with the various holidays and how to prepare. And can you explain to, um, everyone 
what you're hoping people will get through Lent with your recipes? Well, I think Lent and Holy Week, for example, is is really a time of of penitence, mortification. But that doesn't mean that you can't celebrate your faith with food. And so there's a few different recipes that I put in there that were Lent approved. They're not necessarily penitential, uh, but because they're delicious, but they are you know, meatless. And so for example, one is fish day soup. I mean, that just sounds so strange, but in it, we, we try to use um, not only just fish broth, but in, in some sense, very simple ingredients that people might not put together. And so that's one of the things I wanted to do was try to get people to stretch their ideas. By the way, these are also historical recipes as well coming from different parts of the world where they would celebrate the the seasons including lent and we say it's strange to celebrate it but you should celebrate lent to get as much out of it as possible this will make you think about what other countries have eaten and it also it also tastes good yeah, I, I that's actually one of the recipes I saw. I was like, fish day soup, what? Um, but it does look good. I haven't tried it yet, though. Yeah, okay. I think I think you'll enjoy it. It can't get any simpler, too. It just throw it all in there and and cook. <laughs> so, uh, how much training do you think people will need to to enjoy the recipes in your book? Can a novice do this? Absolutely. I mean, there are going to be some recipes. I mean, there was a chef, for example, that sent me an email and and he was questioning something. Um, he, he made one of the recipes and it didn't come out the way it should. And, and, you know, honestly, it could be a little error in the recipe as I'm recording. I'm writing. There's over 200 recipes, you know, so it's a lot of recipes. And so could there be human error in all of this? Yeah, for sure. But I wouldn't be intimidated. You do not have to be a trained chef in any way. Like I'm trained to a degree. I'm in no way a master chef. And so some of these recipes were challenging even for me, but for the sake of historicity, for the mm -hmm. sake of evoking questions and thoughts and, 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 you know, and memories that you'll make. So this chef made the, this recipe and it, it'll be a memory for him for sure <laughs> but but it was definitely worth a try and ultimately I think it tasted good well okay so everybody who's watching please go get dining with saints father leo you are making a huge difference it was such an exciting thing to hear your talk in person I encourage people if they have the opportunity to listen to, you know come to your talks because they're really really helpful. Uh, and also buy this book. Mother's Day is coming up. I think this is the perfect gift for moms. And it's also just really helpful for people who are like me, who are new and trying to learn the saints. And it's a fun way to do that. So thank you so much. Tell, please tell everyone where they can find this book, where they can buy it and I think that they can go just about anywhere from Amazon to even my own website, Plating Grace 
com where they can learn about all the other things that I have written, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, hearing some of the talks and such. But I think that they're available where all books can be sold. And, uh, and, and I just, I, I'm, I'm really excited about it as well. And can't thank you enough for having me on your show. Thanks for being here. Pleasure. And we're back, Scott. Well, it's not often that we have to follow a holy man on our podcast. In fact, that that's the first time this has happened. <laughs> and so it's a little hard gonna, to follow. Well, it's nice to get our act cleaned up a little bit, I think. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I, I mean, we've been trying to bring the positive and I will say that we are bringing the positive today. You that's know, the a, whole that was about as positive as we've had on the podcast. So that's a good thing. It is. So the whole world might, you know, have a banking collapse. We might be at war with Russia. You know, I don't know if you heard that we had a uh, drone uh, crash into hmm, it, into a Russian fighter jet or something today. Yeah. Um, so the World War Three might be happening, but we'll have our family meals from hopefully the garden that we've planted because there's, you know, who knows about the food. Yep. Yep. Hopefully there's some good turnip recipes and, and, uh, <laughs> you know, the things that you can grow in your Biden garden in the, uh, in the dining with the saints cookbook. So um, Biden garden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know, but this seems like an escalation to me. What happened with Russia today? Yeah, we'll see. Um, you know, I, we've been at this kind of point of escalation for really several weeks now where, you know, any minute you feel like something really terrible could happen. And thankfully, knock on wood, it hasn't. Um, but this thing happening could change the game. And you just, you know, you just don't know. The, I mean, you know, the biggest problem that you have is what's sort of going on behind the scenes, which is, the Russians and the Chinese are really sort of cementing a little bit of an axis um, kind of away from where we are. And this is beginning to sort of um, um, manifest itself in, you know, I mean, the, you know, the whole BRICS uh, thing with currency. Um, now you've got China brokering peace between the Saudis and the Iranians, and we're not involved, which is a pretty bold statement where it comes to, um, uh, you know, America's role in the world and what it portends, because if the Iranians and the Saudis are going to be in uh, sort of in sync with each other, that, you know, Iran and Russia are, are more or less in sync with each other. So if you bring the Saudis along uh, on that, now you've got three of the top, what, five oil producers in the world mm -hmm. are aligned against us now. Mm -hmm. um, these are the kinds of things that a wise American leadership would have acted to prevent a long time ago. Right. Um, and, you know, we don't have wise American leadership. A wise American leadership would have found a way to put an end to the Russia-Ukraine war months ago and then that was not done and so you know all of these things you can see it's uh, you know america's place in the world eroding mm -hmm. um and you know ultimately the you know the, the really negative thing here and we're talking about this in the middle of a 
you know, what could be a, a banking crisis that that spreads to, you know, very established and, and formidable banks around the country is, you know, the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency, mm -hmm. because if we lose that, we're going to have a whole bunch of banks collapsing and we're going to have a collapse in American standard of living and all of these other you know parade of horribles can show up. Um, and I, I, nobody on really on either side of the political divide has done very much thinking and acting on, you know, how do we shore up the dollar and make sure that the rest of the world is committed to having it as the reserve currency? And when you debase the currency by spending six trillion dollars worth of of, you know, fiat money. Uh, to do things that are not necessary as far as the economy is concerned, you know, that's how you shake loose the dollar as the world's reserve currency. And, you know, these are all things that could I could have told you at the very beginning, you know, it was a bad idea because he, it, it, these were the potential effects um, and, and we're getting it. And so I you know, I don't this really is the know. Thing. This is not any, nothing is a mystery. I mean, I'm right. no All economics. of it's foreseeable. Yes, yeah. all of it was foreseeable, all of it, which then leads to people saying, well, this is a planned demise. So to usher in a digital currency, what do you say about that? I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's if it's uh, if if all of that is true, but I would like I'd equate it to COVID. OK, um, you know, was COVID a bioweapon that was intentionally released by the Chinese? Yeah, probably not. Um, does China have a biowarfare playbook that they cracked open as soon as that virus got out? Absolutely. Did China act as though COVID was a bioweapon once it got out? Absolutely, right? Like they kept the airport in Wuhan open for international flights so that the virus would get out internationally and do the same amount of economic damage everywhere else in the world that it was going to do in China, right? Because right. they figured, why should we be the only ones suffering? And what we've now found out is that that's not a completely immoral position, seeing as though it was U.S. dollars that actually bankrolled the creation of the freaking virus, right? So when you look at right. these things and you say, okay, well, you know, I, how much of a, um, you know, planned demise to get us there uh, is this? I'm not sure it's the right question. I mean, certainly it's a valid question, but the real, the real, you know, nub of this is now that this stuff is happening, um, and you, you know, you have the crisis that Rahm Emanuel would say shouldn't go to waste. What are they going to do? Um, and so, you know, what worries me isn't so much the cause as the effect. Um, and, you know, it, it just tells you how how absolutely um, scary it is to have the quality of leadership that we have mm -hmm. and the kind of people involved in making decisions that we have. Right. And the decisions that are being made that we have. Um you know, because I mean, Joe Biden can give all the stupid press conferences that he wants and go, you know, kind of waddle with the mm -hmm. poopy drawers back behind that door rather than take any questions from anybody. But we know that he's not running the country. and The people who are um, are the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, these are not people who have the best interests of the American public at heart. 
and they, you know, they, they tell you this over and over and over again. Um, and you can just simply see by their reaction to, um, you know, things which are not uh, in their plans, uh, like how much they really respect and love the American people. I, I, this is going to seem like a strange segue, but like this massive controversy about Tucker Carlson showing that video from January 6th. And the yeah. things that these people are saying when it's like, well, wait a minute, this is more information rather than less. And it gives people a better understanding of what actually happened than they were given for two years when the Democrats were officially running an investigation into it. And they're angry and they're, you know, they're 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 using some of the most inflammatory terms possible to describe, you know, the guy who's showing the video. So informing the public is somehow an atrocity of some kind. I mean, what that says about the people making those statements about Carlson is not good, right? Like that tells you, we're, you know, you're dealing with people who want to hide things from the American public. Um, and generally speaking, when someone wants to hide something from you, it's not because they're trying to protect you. They're trying to protect themselves. Well, the I can't remember which lefty it was wanted to be with this whole bank thing because they were worried about bank runs across the country. And in fact, they had some in certain places. And like I went to the local bank and tried to pull out a certain amount of money. And the bank guy was just a nervous wreck and didn't want there was limits. This is at Wells Fargo. Um, they're limiting what you could take out. And I don't know. And, you know, individual banks will only have so much cash on hand on any given day. But I was just like, oh, this is not good. Right. You know, this is not good. One thing I noticed, I, I'm saying this as a Gen Xer. So the hue and the cry from within like the Senate were the old guys, you know, Romney, all the the boomers. And then we see like Sam Bankman freed. We see the head of this SVB bank, Elizabeth Holmes. I saw this funny uh, thing. Dave Burge on Twitter was saying, you know, all uh, the Forbes covers are like the, you know, the sports illustrated curse, the cover curse, where, you know, as soon as they're on the cover, their career right. goes to crap. Right. Well, you have these Forbes covers where you have these, a moral kind of wonder kids millennials and i am what i do wonder if there's some sort of generational uh disconnect or if they're all being taught something in school i think they all view themselves they're all kind of kids of privilege and citizens of the world types and i don't think like america at all and have a completely different amoral godless calculus and not interested in really basic things like shareholder accountability, uh, official, you know, fiduciary responsibility, you know, really basic kind of um, ethical things that are completely ignored. And well, well, and what what I would say to that and a long time ago uh, and i can't remember who it was i went to um 
the Louisiana Association of Business and Industry, which is basically the state chamber of commerce here, mm -hmm. uh, has an annual meeting and they get, you know, big speakers coming in nationally. I mean, Laura Ingram spoke and mm -hmm. a bunch of things. They had a guy and he was talking about, uh, and this is four or five years ago, but he had this whole kind of conception of everything. He was talking, he says, look, you know, there's the old economy and the new economy, the old economy, you know, and he says, then you guys in Louisiana pretty much specialize in it. It's making, you know, stuff, right? Like petrochemical industry. Sure. Uh, think like that's the old economy. The new economy is more Silicon Valley stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the new economy guys deal much more in ideas and intellectual property than they do in like goods and services, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the difference between the old economy and the new economy is the BS factor, right? If you're making widgets, you know, your your widget has got to do the things a widget does, right? It's got to right. be of a certain size that it can be plugged into whatever machine a widget does mm -hmm. in. Like, it's either a good widget or it's not a good widget, and you're going to make X number of widgets, mm -hmm. right? The, the new economy doesn't really work that way. Right. The new economy is, is, hey, we built an app and now we're going to sell it to Google. Right. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if you're making widgets, there's some of that, but you actually have to have a product like you don't actually have to bring that app to market before you can go make one hundred million dollars off of it. Right. There is no oil refinery or car factory or, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a timber mill or whatever that that operates on that principle and so i think you can get away with a lot more flim flam in the new economy and i think that's why you have more um you know kind of left-leaning people that populate that economy um and some of this is, is they tend to be more creative people and you know the the ip space is sort of a creative space so there is that um you know but the other thing is is you know, the facts of life generally are conservative and um, a tech economy is all about sort of changing what the facts of life are. Um, but what you get with some of these people that, you know, sort of these wonderkind um, entrepreneurs that want to change the world and all this kind of stuff is you're really operating on the principle of, you know, you're spending other people's money on things. Mm -hmm. And you're not creating as much concrete stuff mm -hmm. that le leads to the kind of natural accountability that you would get if you're making gasoline. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's sort of the dichotomy here. You know, plus, it's, you know, the new economy is new. And anytime you have economic sectors that kind of spring up, um, you know, whether it's a ride share or it's, you know, a social media platform or, or some of these things that didn't really exist 20, 25 years ago, mm -hmm. there's a good bit of shaking out, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, people are going to kind of scam the market um, to, to a large extent. Cryptocurrency, you know, in theory is a great thing, but it's also something that's wide open for a Sam Bankman fried to come and scam a whole lot of people out of a whole lot of money. It's like um, that, the modern yeah. gold rush or something where yeah, people know. are going and panning for gold, looking for the quick, easy fix. It, you it know, or, me... or the, you know, the Dutch tulip craze or like right. I mean, you've had these things over, over history where, mm -hmm. you know, when they're not really backed by 
solid value at the end of the day. Right. Um, you know, you're going to have some of these people who are going to profiteer. And, you know, typically speaking, these sectors will either disappear or they'll kind of shake out into something that's more, um, you know, more solid. And ultimately, I think you probably get that in the crypto space, but I don't know what it looks like. And I hope it's not um, central bank digital currency. Um, you know, but, the, you know, again, you have a, go a governmental connected guy like Bankman Freed, whose parents mm -hmm. were big Democrat donors and all yeah. plugged in. And he goes and he runs off this crazy deal. And, uh, you know, um, Dresses what is like that a hobo. <laughs> looks like looks like the a complete reject and in any other it talks like a bizarre weirdo. lifestyle and every yeah, I mean, like everything like about this guy is like almost central casting to to shake the the, the right. public's confidence in the sector he's operating in which right. happens to be something that the left wants to co-opt for its own ends right, right? and bring in the social credit scores and everything mm -hmm. else mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'm not saying the guy's a ringer, but like it wouldn't be all that big a shock if he was right. You right. could say, well, that fits a pattern. And, right. you know, like I saw a meme on on Facebook this morning and it's somebody saying, you know, before you insult us, conspiracy theorists, I'll have you know, we're 42. We're up 42 to nothing right now. <laughs> right. Well, it's um, true, though, right? Yeah. I, think I mean, you know, it's like they're not conspiracy theorists. They're just six months ahead of you. Right. Right. They have um, foresight and insight. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and I'm like, I, these things keep happening mm -hmm. and, you know, you keep seeing the, you know, the rot underneath um, all of these, these events that keep happening. And it's, it's, it's the same stuff. It's somebody who's outwardly woke uh, inwardly is, you know, is doing none of the basic controls that a right. business should have. Like we talked about SVB for nine months, doesn't have anybody in charge of right. risk, risk right. assessment while right. they've got all the DEI people and they're, you know, they're blowing $5 billion on, a, you know, cutting a carbon footprint for a bank. For, and it's like, right. why don't right. you do the basics? And they're like, well, we don't do the basics. Like that. that's, if we did the basics, that would make us like, the basic people and we're not that we're like smarter we're and better and mm. so we can have our cheese flapping in the wind and when it goes to hell in a handbasket the government will bail us out well, because the, the government has designs on our economic sector and turning it into some kind of nationalized you know uh new age woke freaking thing that's no longer capitalist well here's the thing is there really any such thing as the new economy, I mean, stick with me here. We like Slack as a business online is a, an actual thing that if it didn't work, nobody would buy it. Like it is a, an application for the computer and for uh, sharing of information with business people. Okay. That at the very basics, if that idea didn't work, or like if the fundamentals of like the psychology of it didn't work or the product itself was stunk, it wouldn't exist. So like- But does that... it make a profit? I mean, like I, I'm asking because I don't know. No, I think it does. Okay. But I, that's why I'm saying is that like, there are certain things that are making a profit because they work. And yeah. Amazon undercut their competitors and they're 
their stockholders for years and years and years. And didn't make a profit. And didn't make a profit. And people put up with it. And I think now it turns a profit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no. It makes a profit now. Uber doesn't, though. But the profit margin is, it was like 10, 11%. It's now one or 2%, which is typical of like grocery stores. So right. like, you know, I, I think there's some certain fundamentals that have to exist at a certain point or else it's not going to work. Yeah. Like, yeah. But I mean, the thing of it is, is like, how long has Uber been in business and they still don't make a profit? Yeah. Right. I mean, that, that, that thing rides on a mountain of equity. Um, mm -hmm. And at some point, when they've pushed that industry big enough um, and probably when they get to the point where they don't actually have Uber drivers because they're self-driving cars and right, you can put right. that, that part out of it. Mm -hmm. I, you know, at that point, I think, you know, Uber probably does make a profit. And then, you know, the, the, um, the, the world economic forum type people will tell you, well, it's the Ubers of the world. That's who's going to own all the cars. Like right. we're going to make sure the cars are a hundred thousand dollars and all the cars are going to be self-driving cars that you just, you grab one from Uber and you don't drive it. Um, you know, and so if your social credit score is low, you may be waiting a long time for a freaking car. Or if you're morbidly obese, then you're going to have to walk um, or God knows what. And <laughs> You know, maybe I, I'll get in shape then. You may have to if you want to go anywhere. <laughs> um, if not, there's DoorDash and you stay in your house as a shut in because they don't want to see you anyway, right? Like, I mean, that's like the whole like kind of horrid <laughs> dystopian existence that, that some of these masterminds have planned for us. And it's like, and you know, and I we've I decided come, we don't want to see you so. So we're delivering you get, you, food to well, your house. I mean, you know, look, we had a trial run of this with COVID. You have to stay in your house. Right. Um, but I mean, I, you know, and and I get in trouble when I say this is like the, the problem with all this mm -hmm. is that there are no consequences to the people who are trying to impose this on the rest right. of it. Right. Right. Like it's an academic exercise and our side is just willing to win the argument. Right. And here we are getting canceled. So we can't win the argument. Right. And well, the we're question is it's, it's like being dead. Right. So, so like, are all these Republicans going to sit there and go as they, you know, the, uh, David Frums of the world, what's the name, what's the deal with the name David? Uh, um, did you see the latest article by, um, Oh, what's his name? He's over with, uh, Jonah Goldberg. Oh, you find French? Oh, David French. Basically excusing all of this debauchery with the like the um drag story hour and transgender parents and that we right. can't and I'm just like, wait a minute. We can tell th this whole argument, I'm no lawyer, David, but I do know this. We don't allow people to murder in their homes because it's their home. We do not allow people to rape in their homes because it's their home. We do not let, we would not let parents castrate their children in their home because it's their home. There's all sorts of laws that we have. Why is chemical castration different? 
Why aren't we protecting the rights of the innocent here? This is not some vast overreach to say that a child should have some say in their uh, health and life once they can make a decision at the age of maturity, but that things like that shouldn't be done to them. Well, that... let me come about this from a, a like a totally different perspective. Okay? okay. You trans all of these kids. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what you're doing is removing them from the gene pool. You're making sure that they're not going to yeah. reproduce. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. And you can get all snarky about that if you want. But the fact yeah. of the matter is, you need to have 2.1 kids per uh, adult female or else you're not going to replace your population, okay? And the more females you make sterile through taking them trans, that 2.1 number goes up because you're moving a certain percentage of the population to the side, whether they right. decide to be gay, whether they decide to be childless, whether they do the trans thing or whatever it might be. And you are now like, you know, everybody else instead of 2.1 kids has got to have 2.6, mm -hmm. right? And I mean, otherwise, you know, and at some point you make it so it's not even possible and your population starts to decline and your nation starts to decline. You know, back in the old days when we actually did law in law school, you would look at something like that and you would say, well, that's a compelling state interest. Okay. And in right. legal, you know, analysis, a compelling state interest means the state can do a whole lot of stuff and it'll still be found constitutional. Mm -hmm. So to, you know, if somebody decides, okay, look, we're going to fight all of this trans ideology and all, like we're going to promote uh, cisgenderism to use, you know, one of these stupid woke terms. A made guys. up word. Right. Which is, you know, it's not a word. Um, like, you know, like, like we're going to do this because we have a compelling state interest in maintaining the population as it is. And we can just do the math and show if 10% of these kids become, you know, alphabet people. Okay. Uh, then that means instead of 2.1, you got to have 2.3 kids per everybody else. Right. So look, that's a, I mean, you know, and remember 2.3 kids was the average American family not long ago. Right. You know, you're getting to the point where it's the replacement rate. Like that's not even mm -hmm. keeping the, you know, a healthy growing population. It's like the bare minimum that you need just to not, you know, fall into a situation like Japan where everybody's right. old and can't work and there's nobody to take care of them anymore. Right. Um, and so you know, like this is the whole thing is, you know, you're acting like, well, you know, you can't tell, tell people what to do. And it's like, we actually do tell people what to do. Uh, the left loves to tell people what to do. The things right. that they are telling us to do are not good things. Right. Um, for thousands of years, you know, be fruitful and multiply, um, whether, you know, whether in a Christian context or really in the context of every other major religion, um, has always been part of the, the basic directive of a society. And all of a sudden that's oppressive. No, right. that's that's ridiculous. I mean, the whole thing is so bizarre a world, it's not even funny. And then you have guys like David French who are, you know, defending the wrong side. And of course, I, and I need to say this because nobody else is saying it, but it's pretty obvious, is the corruption involved in this. David French is an attorney and his clients typically are the people who are being oppressed 
by the left along these lines. And so if you make those kinds of things, those cultural aggressions of the left, if you do something about them in a legislative context and you make it so that they are not capable of doing this stuff, then David French has to find a new line of work mm. because he doesn't get any clients when they can't do to his clients what they're currently doing. And he never discloses that and he never says anything about it. And it's dishonest and it's immoral and unethical. And nobody ever really calls him on that, which is drives me up the wall. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the thing is, is that is a problem on the right, this co-option in one form or another, um, that, which reminds me, because we're not, it doesn't just happen on the right. It's happening on the left as well in a different way. So there, I don't know if you saw, but Jonathan Haidt had this long Substack article about the mental illness problem amongst young liberals. Yeah, you wrote about that. I did write about that. And he was basically saying they pointed to technology, specifically to the bifurcation of Tumblr versus 4chan slash Reddit. Okay, that... That may be true. That exact no question exacerbated some underlying problems, but it doesn't explain why. There's a biological reason why young women uh, going through puberty have depression. They their hormones are changing. Some astronomical number, like seventy-five to ninety percent of women going through that phase of their life, the hormones themselves cause depression-like symptoms this too shall pass. Every parent knows this or should know this. This is a normal phase. You have to keep an eye on your daughters at this phase because they're fragile emotionally and they get through it as their hormones regulate. And usually you'll see these kids in middle school or the first year or something of high school. And by the end, they're completely different girls. They're women. And, and once they become, they have the hormones of a woman, they're fine. But as they go through that period of time, it's tough. So, so that's just, that's just a biological fact. You layer onto it some social problems and then you have real issues because they, because you don't mature through that biologically, the, the depression lingers on and that's what we're seeing societally, but everything they're talking about doesn't explain young men. Men historically are the happiest through those years. They're high on testosterone. They have no cares in the world. And they are having a grand old time, not so in this modern world, and especially not so amongst liberal young men. They have no biological reason for these issues and hate doesn't address it. It's a confounding factor of his argument. It, it, mm -hmm. it completely undermines his argument. And so you have on the left, this kind of massive depression because of their belief system. Yeah. And there, uh, to your point, it's reinforced. So like, so there is like David French is out of a job. If his persecuted clients ever are not per persecuted, uh, all these leftist commentators are out of a job. If they say, you know what? Race relations are better. There goes BLM. There goes critical race theory. There goes DEI yeah. initiatives. There's no now, grant money to say that kind of stuff for sure. Nope, there's no grant money. And there's certainly no um, authors willing to say it because if they do, the jig is up. So, right. you know, 
you have these and they have to react hysterically. So it cracked me up. They talk about cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is great. Change your thinking, change your behavior, and you get better. All right. Basic stuff. So you have these kind of hysterics on the left who are catastrophizing, mm -hmm. externalizing. So everything is terrible and is never going to change. And everything is um, uh, somebody else's fault. Right. So like the climate is changing and those people driving SUVs are, they're killing right. the environment. Those greedy uh, oil companies. All right. Well, there's nothing an individual can do about that. It makes them feel helpless and hopeless. The two foundations of depression. Right. Well, and so, and not to mention, if you did do something about that, you're going to do more harm than good, right? Well, right. <laughs> so, so like it's a problem causing other problems if it's solved in the way they hope to. Correct. And so like this is everything on the left. Yeah. Well, and, and what's missing from all of it is individual agency, right? right? You're in control of your life. Now, things are going to get thrown at you. But the quality of your life depends on how you deal with those things. Right. And there is nothing in the modern left. Um, and I think this is by design. And I don't think it's a conspiracy theory to say so. There's nothing in the modern left that addresses the question of individual agency. And it's right. not so much that they don't believe in it, because when it comes to their agency, right. um, like Don Lamont, certainly believes in Don Lamont's ability to, to affect whether his life is good or bad. Right. All right. But when it comes to talking to other people, right. they're not about, they, I mean, they use the word empowerment all the time. Right. They're not about entire empowerment. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and what they're about is putting people in a position to accept being taken care of by somebody who really doesn't care about them. Um, and what that's about is lowering standards and it's about letting, you know, allowing or, or forcing people to accept less in life. Um, you well, know, it's also and, about control, right? I mean, well, I, well, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's, yeah, we're talking about means toward that end for sure. If you um, have individual agency, if I believe that I can make a difference in my life, then I am not going and seeking out someone else to help me make my life better. And right. then they, that I mean, unless it's to acquire a skill or something like oh, that, but that's a transaction. Right. That's not a, that's right. not looking for charity. I'm saying that, that, that I'm taking, I'm literally empowered. Correct. I'm taking my power back, which deprives the state and all her actors of her power. If I sit there and go, you know what? I'm going to feed the homeless person in front of me. I'm yep. going to make the world a better place in the small way that I can, which has been shown, by the way, one hour a week of charity work con confers unbelievable mental health benefits. So does singing. So does praying. So does being uh, with people in your community. All these things, by the way, are helped with church and family. You, sure. have, you have a family dinner to Father Leo's point. You go to church once a week and hear a positive message about how you can be a better person. And, you know, someone kicks you in the butt and says, stop being a selfish jerk, start serving. 
Right. You go, you sing, you praise someone bigger than yourself. You realize that, you know, life is kind of hard, but there is cosmic justice. So you don't have to solve every problem. You just have to solve the ones that are in front of you. All of a sudden life doesn't seem so bad. Right. You, But none, uh, no one on the left. And so like what I wrote about is that the whole reinforcement mechanism, like these kids, I don't know if you saw about in Stanford where they, you know, oh. the DEI, and this is in law school. I know. Stanford this, law. I mean, this is like, you can't literally get any more, you know, best and brightest than these kids. And right. it's like, I wouldn't hire any of these guys to sweep a floor. Like what, like no. what happened? How did this even, you know, become a thing? And it's like, well, well, you know, maybe we Stanford, should check out all the bad law schools. Well, the thing is, is so like for people who don't know, they brought in some society brought in a judge, He's kind of conservative. The DEI professor at the college, whoever that is, or administrator, came and disrupted his speech. The Stanford law students disrupted a sitting judge, someone they may come before at some point. That's somebody they'd probably apply to clerk for. Exactly. And had a fit and, and, and didn't allow him to speak. They sent a letter apologizing and then they told the students who were upset by it to go and talk to the dei person so like just upset by the disruption this is anti-freedom it's yeah. anti-civil discourse and the the world can't function this way and to the point of what i was writing about these rotten entitled brats think they're somehow victims because they had to hear from a judge, which is their what they're hoping to be one day, some of them, that they disagreed with. It's it's Western civilization was built on free the cert, uh, freedom of thought at the very least, and the and these uh, little Stalinists are destroying well, and, it and, and reason more than anything else. Right. And right. Reason. Which there's no yeah. reason in screaming at somebody and sh trying to shout them down before they can make a point that you may or may not disagree with. Um, I mean, that's what that is. That's the Chinese cultural revolution. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not Western civilization. No. And, no. you know, to see something like that happen at Stanford and, you, you know, like, you know, how much Chinese influence is being mm -hmm. uh, is being brought to bear there. And all, you know, all of a sudden you start to see these things that look like China. And it's like, OK, you know, yeah, I, right. You're a conspiracy theorist. If you start to look at this stuff and, and see patterns. Mm -hmm. But the patterns are there. I well, mean, they're there. Like yeah, I, you know, I don't may, think maybe it's... it's coincidental. Maybe it's just a stylistic thing that shows up. Maybe it has to do with the psychology of the people involved. And it's the same psychology that kicked in in, in you know, China in the 60s when they did the cultural. Maybe that's the thing. And may, maybe there isn't actual influence being brought to bear. But it sure does look weird because. You know, there was the political correctness craze when I was in college, late 80s, early 90s. And it was nothing like this. Nothing yeah, no. like this. And we all thought that was the most, like, insane thing we'd ever seen. Right. Um, and, you know, remembering that and seeing, you know, Evergreen State and some of the other things that have, uh, well, that that have Evergreen State was campus. only a couple years ago. And right. now it's everywhere society-wide. 
Right. And, and, and you know, and, and the only thing is, you know, you bought to borrow a line from the old aliens movie. You know, the only thing you do is, is blast off and nuke the site from orbit. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, these, some of these institutions can't be saved if this is the way they're going to operate. Yeah. You know, and I mean, you just, you have to, you have to kill the institution before the cancer that is, it's pouring out of it spreads to something else. And I, you know, I'm not saying I want to kill Stanford Law School, but I certainly, you know, the place needs to be fumigated so that you can't have things like this at an institution like that. But I mean, you know, it's happening at Yale, not, not just Stanford. So, I mean, you was like, okay, what is an elite law school anymore? Because, right. you know, if this is how law students and faculty at elite law schools are going to behave, yeah. then frankly, we don't have any elite law schools. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that we do. I, I, it's, it's alarming. So, so I, another piece that I wrote a couple days and be very self-referential. I got to tell you all you people that I was had a writer's block, so I haven't written for a while. And then I, you know how this happened, Scott. And then I wrote, and then I was like, I didn't want to stop writing, you know. And so one piece got done, and then twenty, you know, another twenty five hundred words later, I'm like, ah, I'm into another piece. But anyway, <laughs> that damn done broke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, the it, it's finally broken. But I was talking about how you know dealing with this. So what's the solution to this sort of thing? And I think Father Leo has touched on at least part of it. It's the individual things that families are doing to mm -hmm. the, it's the individual things that matter. It's what you're doing with your own kids. And for parents who are like, well, I don't have any influence. It's just not true. You do yeah. take your kids out of the system. If you can, if you have to, for whatever reason, leave them in it, you have to be having these conversations and yep. you got to so, fight to deprogram those kids every night at the dinner table, at I mean, the dinner that, table. Like, that's, right. That is where it's at. It's where um, it's at. Yeah, I'll say this. Um, we talk, you and I, when we're doing this podcast and when we write about stuff and, and so forth, you know, we talk all the time about the things that are happening on the screens, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, we're, we, we talk, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. we talk about TV shows and movies and we talk mm -hmm. about stuff that's on the internet and all the, this, this kind of deal. And I'm not denying that that's a massive part of life in 2023, mm -hmm. okay? But when you get out in the world and you just talk to people, okay, yeah. most folks are not different now than they were 25 years ago. I mean, like the world has not just completely flipped on its head. What you see is, you know, you'll see news stories about weirdo cultural aggressions, whether it's on the left or, you know, some of these strange things that are happening. Mm -hmm look there's they're newsworthy because they're the exception um you know I, I mean they're the man bites dog stories still and there are more of them i'm not going to deny that but most people are still sane and good and possess some moral character to them um because if they didn't then society would have completely collapsed by now and I'm not saying things are good or that we're in a good position or any of that, but there's still plenty left to this country and this and this society. And I, I you know, I don't want to get so bogged down in, you know, all of the negative things that are happening uh, that, you know, people get the impression that, you know, what we're trying to say is, you know, 
stock up on food and ammo because the end is coming. It's not. Um, it's just well, it that there's be, a really big job but... in front of us to fix it and get it back where it needed to be. Um, but the, I mean, the, the resources to do it are still there. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I would have thought if, if, you know, if the end was near that, you know, yesterday we're recording this on Tuesday that yet, you know, yesterday you would have had half the big banks in the country fail. They didn't, you know, um, and I'm not saying that, you know, you won't have a big bank panic and there won't be some people go down because there will. Um, but Silicon Valley Bank went down because Silicon Valley Bank was a substandard institution. And that same is true for Signature Bank. Um, and these these two, I mean, even though we're now socializing the risk uh, by bailing these people out, these these two banks were a perfect example of, you know, get woke, go broke. Um, and well, so to can I say some something extent, here? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I hate to, because this is such an optimistic message and I think that largely you're correct. My problem is, is that the elites who are running things. So like, if you talk about the Soros DAs, crime yeah. has like gone off through the roof in cities. Those are tangible results of very bad people in positions oh, yeah. of power. No question. And so like, I feel like, we're in a time where like in Lord of the Rings, cause I'm a total nerd, but you know, Sam and Frodo, the hobbits represented the average person, you know, just living mm -hmm. their life and not paying attention to the great powers out there going about generally good people doing their thing. Right. That's, that's mm -hmm. America still, mm -hmm. but the elites, the Saruman's and the Saurons of the world, were basically spreading chaos and had their uh, goblins and orcs. all of orcs. orcs and all of their the evil, they were spawning it and spreading it to the point where the people, um, and you know, this was written after World War One. And um, so the average people eventually, you know, there's some discussion between a couple, Mary and Pippin, two of the habits saying at some, you know, if we don't fight for the, we live in this world too. If we don't fight for um, things, for what we hold dear, nothing's going to be left, not even the Shire. And so our little enclaves of safety around the country where people are like, let the world burn out there. I'm just going to live my good life here increasingly it's going to be a challenge and yes we we shore things up individually which i highly recommend because trying to solve the world's problems is a is a um you know quick trip to mental illness which is why we're seeing it all over the left because they're they're trying to solve right. unsolvable things. yeah i mean they're they're messianic people who right. they're, you're messianic but you're not the messiah Right. which is exactly. a problem for you. Yes, it is. It, it can be discouraging. And uh, so, so, you know, we have to focus, but I do think that we are at a time where people, the average person going about and being good, who we see when we go to the grocery store, we see when we go to church and all our daily interactions are going to have to wake up to where we're at mm -hmm. because at a certain point, 
this stuff is not going to stop. Um, conservatives tend to like to ignore it. You know, David French is, you know, perfect. He's constantly, his whole gig is whistling past the graveyard. But the rest of us who have, who care and love this world are going to have to pay attention and hold the leaders accountable in some form or fashion, because civilization mm -hmm. is very easy to burn up. It's not so easy to build. And yeah, that's right. Oh. Well, and then, you know, I, I keep coming back to consequences. There have to be consequences. Yeah. And, and, you know, our side is not good at, um, you know, it, I mean, they keep calling us judgy. Right. right? And it's like, yeah, but I, I would, I mean, if I'm not so upset about the idea of being judgy, I, I want, you know, where's the executioner? Right. <laughs> right. Like, right. like, I, you know, I mean, it's, it's one thing to look down your nose at clearly, you know, bad behavior, but it's something else when you say, okay, like, what are we going to do? Because I don't think you should have that job anymore. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I think we need to start being a little bit more willing to, to impose consequences. When you have mm -hmm. clearly abusive college professors, I want them fired, right? I, especially at state institute. Like, I don't want my tax dollars paying for these people. And, yeah. you know, and I, I think that's, that's where we need to start really pushing, you know, particularly on the political folks. We need way more Ron DeSantis. We need people who are, okay, let's go cut these people off at the knees and let's make it so that they have a little bit of fear that, hey, you know what? If we overreach, there's going to be some negative consequences because those other guys are not playing anymore. Right. Um, and, and that is, I think, really is one of the biggest things that needs to change on the right is we need to become a little bit nastier. Um, you know, not in, in, in the sense of, of um, you know, that, that we're doing this just out of a mean spiritedness, but the fact of the matter is you have to deter people from bad conduct right? or else, I mean, it's, you know, it's the same principle. I mean, you know, it, it's going to sound a little Stalinist, but there are political criminals out there, not just the people doing carjackings in the street. Right. right. And so when a Latoya Cantrell in New Orleans destroys the city and actually this is happening you know she gets recall and they actually hit the number and there's going to be a recall election in new orleans and she's personally coming apart at the seams and it's like well it's terrible for her but look what she's done to that city it's right. justice right Lori lightfoot gets 17 percent of the vote 83 yeah. five out of six chicagoans turn her out because she's such a lousy mayor and of course, she doesn't learn her lesson. They ask her, well, what happened to you? She's, oh, I'm a black woman. And it's like, oh, right. that's not uh, what your problem was. Yeah, I don't she, think but so. You're never going to teach Lori Lightfoot, right? No. Okay, but what, you know, you turn her out of power. Okay, yeah. you know what I mean? And these are things that actual Democrats have done in New Orleans. Right. There are no Republicans in New Orleans or Chicago. Right. Um, but the fact of the matter is, those two episodes show that you can impose some accountability on bad behavior. Um, and, you know, the real issue is, is, okay, well, what are Republican politicians and what are Republican voters willing to do right. when it's time to impose consequences for these bad acts? 
you know, I mean, I'm, I'm ready for the COVID reckoning. I'm ready for that. You know, there should be plenty enough of us wanting to impose it that we can get it started, but let's go. Well, um, it's going to happen. I, let me just help you with this. I, 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 it's happening, but it's it'll happen in about a year from now. So after after Trump gets the nomination, it will happen because they will because everyone will be interested with the effects of the vaccine. And uh, that's when it'll be. And well, and, and, I, and I think you're going to start filling up the courts, too. And that that oh, is well, going to yeah. become a big deal. Um, so anyway, I mean, like, you know, I always want to kind of close these things by being hopeful. I think there are reasons to be hopeful. Um you know, I, I think people living their lives uh, has such a huge piece to this, because if you can live your life, I mean, the best revenge is living well. Um, and that really is a message. I, you know, It's a little bit of a boiling down of what Father Leo was saying. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that's part of it. And I think, you know, like be bold and and, you know, and, and be of good cheer, you know, and be a happy warrior. Um, you know, and it, it doesn't mean that you're going to ignore what's going on. You shouldn't. But, you know, and the other thing is, is let's have a healthy disrespect for the other side rather than, you know, just pretend like, you know, they've got the, you know, everything is rigged and, they, and they've won. It's like, do you really think that you can't beat an AOC? I mean, come on, have a little bit more self-confidence than that. These people are morons. You can beat these people. All you got to do is show up and mm -hmm. and we'll get there. So yeah. that's, that's, that's my pep talk for the day. The positive thing I would say, um, is that you can make a difference. I've got three very conservative children. They all went through public schools. And so it is not inevitable that they will turn out, you know, little Marxists. You have to work and you have to, there's certain things and we can maybe talk about this in another podcast and how to help. Um, it's something that I'm writing about right now, how to help, you know, parents during, uh, deal with this kind of thing, but it's possible. So, you know, for those who are feel like giving up, don't give up, keep fighting and keep fighting on the individual front. And if, if, for example, uh, this is why the American spectator, I think is so important. I'm going to put a little plug in for us here, okay. Scott, is that, um, there's a lot of encouragement. There's a lot of information, information and knowledge is power. Be educated so that when you are asked about these things as a parent, as a grandparent, you can answer and give an intelligent answer, mm -hmm. um, and rebut what children are being taught and have these conversations and the American spectator will help you do that. Give the subscription to friends and family, help arm other people. You don't have to do this alone. You're not alone. There's lots of people out in the slog doing every single day doing this, but you still have more to... of us than there are of them. That's, That's exactly sure. right. A girlfriend of mine, she and her husband, we, you know, we've known each other and our kids have known each other for years and she doesn't like conflict. And so she didn't like having these political discussions at home. And, and I'm like, have these discussions. You can't afford, somebody's talking to your kid. You know, Father Leo is absolutely right. If you're not feeding your children emotionally, physically, 
mentally. Somebody is. Yeah. And so feed them and have the tough conversations. Anyway, for, uh, for us at the Spectacle Podcast, thank you for listening. Please subscribe. Please share all of it. Thank you, Scott. I feel like we're hitting our stride with these podcasts. A little bit. A little bit and getting better. Please give us feedback. Uh, we appreciate yeah, let, it. Let us know what guests you'd like us to have on. Yeah. Now that we've begun adding a guest segment, we're going to do much more of it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, give us, you know, in the comment box, let us know if you've got somebody that you'd love us to talk to and we'll go talk to them. Uh, that sounds good. Yeah. We, we'll be watching for your feedback. And like I said at the beginning, you can email us too. Best way. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Yeah.